The experience of pain is both physical and psychological. All pain encompasses both. We have to be conscious to experience pain. And if you're conscious, your mood and your memory and your culture and your past experience all influence how we experience pain. And that's from breaking your thumb all the way through to living with arthritis or living with multiple sclerosis or something like that. Welcome to Talking Health, a podcast where we explore the big health issues facing our communities. On this podcast, you'll hear from some of the world's leading health researchers, community organisations and people with lived experiences about the advancements we're making in health to transform the well-being of our communities at each stage of life. I'm Professor Deborah Anderson, the Dean of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the founder and director of the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative. I've spent my career dedicated to supporting people and particularly women after cancer to implement lifestyle sustainable changes to get the most out of life. Today on the podcast, I'm delighted to say I'm speaking with Professor Toby Newton-John, the Acting Head of School for the Graduate School of Health at University of Technology, Sydney in Australia. Toby is an internationally recognised clinical psychologist researching how people live with pain and in particular, how couples cope when one of them suffers chronic pain. He's been involved in chronic pain treatment and research since 1993 and has held clinical psychology positions with pain clinics across the UK and Australia and continues a small clinical practice outside his academic work with UTS today. Welcome, Toby, and thank you for joining me on Talking Health today. Thanks, Toby. It's great to be here. Let's start with psychology. This is a challenging career. Can you tell us what sparked your interest in the profession? I think when I reflect back on it now, and it sounds a bit Freudian to uh, use an irony, but my mother was a clinical psychologist. And I think, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, just seeing a parent who seems to really enjoy their job and seemed to get a lot of satisfaction from it and was kind of keen to share the successes of the day, you know, in terms of being able to help people, that sort of generic idea of you want to do something meaningful. And so I think partly it was seeing, seeing her valuing what she did with her day. And I think probably the second thing with psychology particularly was that when I was an undergraduate studying psychology, there was, I got a job as a research assistant. And that was a time when the repetitive strain injury, the RSI problem was like an epidemic in Australia. And this is a time where something like a quarter of the Telstra, as it was then, workforce was off work with RSI at one point. So there was, there was a lot of research money trying to understand what was happening here. And so I got a job as a research assistant on one of those projects, looking at the psychological contribution, perhaps, to something like RSI. And that's really started my interest in, in chronic pain as an area of psychology, just through the pragmatics of, of working in research as an assistant. So are you glad with your choice? Very much. I think it's working in, in clinical health psychology, this sort of intersection between mental health and physical health has been has been really rewarding and, and endlessly interesting. And, you know, it feels like sometimes you, with patients, but also with students, bring people's awareness to something that they they never really considered before. You know, things that sort of sit in the back of your mind or you've, you haven't formalised into some sort of clear understanding of something. And you know, to help them make those links and put notions together, whether it's to help them manage chronic disease or whether it's to, to help them train in, in this new profession, is really rewarding. So no, I wouldn't, wouldn't change anything. 
Fantastic. Toby, we had Professor David Sibrit, who is your colleague as the head of School of Public Health on the podcast recently, talking about chronic disease and how we can empower people with chronic disease to self-manage their conditions and improve their quality of life. Much of your work is also focused on chronic disease in relation to pain. What roles does psychology play in managing chronic pain conditions? This is a, one of these, again, these areas that's critically important, but actually there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of almost stigma about where does psychology fit into people's experience of pain. We have a kind of a Western medicine idea that pain's a physical thing and it's, you know, it's the result of some damage to the body and we can, we can measure that damage or observe it. And that's when people have legitimate pain. And yet if somebody complains of pain and we can't see the cause, that's a psychological thing. That's psychogenic pain or something which is not legitimate and maybe reflects something some inadequacy in, in that person. So part of my role as a clinician is helping folks understand that the experience of pain is both physical and psychological. All pain encompasses both. You have to be conscious to experience pain. And if you're conscious, your mood and your memory and your culture and your past experience all influence how we experience pain. So, and that's from breaking your thumb all the way through to living with arthritis or living with multiple sclerosis or something like that. So in a chronic pain context, when people come in for help with a pain condition that doesn't have a cure, which is the case for lots of these chronic conditions, my job is to help them appreciate that they actually can have a, a very significant influence over their experience of their pain when they learn how to, uh, I guess, optimize the kinds of interpretations they make of their pain, the way they move with pain, um, how they sleep, how they communicate with family, all these kinds of things all have an inf influence on sort of turning up or turning down the volume of their pain experience. And again, sometimes that's a bit confronting for people at first because they interpret that as you saying it's all in my head, but in fact, pain is experienced in a conscious brain. And so part of being a conscious brain is learning how to use your brain, if you like, as, as helpfully as possible. I believe you've been doing some work with the Faculty of Engineering and IT around artificial intelligent headsets for people with spinal cord injuries and any others. Can you share examples of your current work in this space, which sounds fascinating? This is, I think, a really interesting project. It's looking at spinal cord injury pain particularly. So people have had a, a major trauma to the spinal cord. And we've known that they very commonly have pain as a result, nerve pain related to that nerve damage. And what's been shown previously is that the brain activity with people with spinal cord injury who have pain is different to the brain activity of people who don't have pain. And essentially, the, the sort of analogy is a bit like an orchestra that's all playing out of time. And so there are brain rhythms which are too fast and there's other brain rhythms which are too slow compared to normal non-pain brain activity. So uh, collaboration with FEIT at UTS here and also colleagues at Neura, we've developed, a well, FEIT have a headset device and we've developed a, a game, a sort of software platform which so patients put a headset on which has electrodes dry electrodes picks up brain activity at their, their scalp and by learning how to regulate their brain rhythms to slow down the parts of the brain that are running too fast and to speed up the brain activity which is too slow if we can get the orchestra to play in time again as it were the hope is that we'll be able to ameliorate their, their neuropathic pain so it's been a wonderful experience working with the software engineers and the, the headset designers on the hardware side. And we have done some qualitative work already looking at how spinal cord injured folks 
see a device like this, where they see it as an acceptable and, and feasible treatment, and very positively, their responses have been have been favourable, and they've given us a good feedback as well, actually, about how we can improve. So we're looking to start our first trials of the device next year. So most treatment for pain is, you know, medication management, surgery. There's there are side effects and there are costs, and generally speaking, they don't do a huge amount to relieve the pain. So anything that has self-management, the patient can do it themselves. There's no side effect. The, these headsets are very light. They're very portable. You know, idea is to give control back to the patient to not make them rely on a healthcare system or on external sort of agents like medication, um, things that they can do for themselves, to themselves, and, and get control over their health that way, which is really important. Oh, such an important area of chronic pain, you know, it can affect people's quality of life so much. Toby, also for the past several years, you've been leading a big project with Odyssey House New South Wales. And this is a fantastic organisation that provides rehabilitation services to address harms associated with alcohol and other drug use. This work involved embedding a team of researchers, I believe, within Odyssey House for a period of about two years. Can you tell us a bit more about this project and how it evolved? Embedding researchers for two years, that's a big research project, Toby. Again, it came about somewhat serendipitously. I was at a, at a charity event and happened to meet the CEO of Odyssey House New South Wales, who she had just joined the organisation. And we chatted as you do about, you know, what job do you do? And, and she said, oh, I've just joined Odyssey House New South Wales. Great organisation. It's been going for 40 years, but we've never evaluated the service. We we have lots of individual stories about how great rehab is for drug and alcohol people. But, you know, there's that phrase, the plural of anecdote isn't evidence. So she was looking for someone to give her a hand to evaluate the, the intervention and Drug and alcohol is not certainly my, my area of expertise, but service evaluation and clinical trials is part of all of our work in health. And so we got together, it happened that was a New South Wales Health grant, just again, as, the, as luck would have it. And so we applied for this grant and we were successful. So the starting point for that research was, was again, this awareness that, you know, for an external agency to come in and kind of evaluate an organisation can, can be a bit threatening for for the people working there and feel like you're being scrutinised a bit. And also for the residents, and in this case, the participants in the study, we really didn't want people to feel like they were kind of under a microscope by some external place. It's not a good feeling. So Odyssey were really helpful and, and we were able to, to facilitate this of having a research assistant, Rose Miller, actually work out of Odyssey House a couple of days a week for the best part of two years. And she was there to interview residents as part of the study but to get to know the staff, the clinical staff as well, and not, not see, be seen as, as a kind of an outside sort of scrutineer, but more an ally of both and, and somebody who understood what was happening in this program and, and therefore we could make sense of, of the information that we got. So I think that was a good move to have, have her there, um, seen day to day with the residents because they're there for quite long periods of time. And there was a result of that evaluation was, um, was a number of things, but one was that we were able to help Odyssey modify their service delivery to make it more efficient. We helped them see where the change was really happening as people move through the treatment trajectory. And that allowed them to make some pretty big changes and make some savings in costs and help their throughput. So it was very valuable for, for all of us. We got a couple of publications coming and, and they've improved their service, but it also allowed us to continue work in, in looking at chronic pain in the drug and alcohol group, because of course that's my area of interest. So that led to a further grant which we were able to um, 
Uh, about nearly 50% of people who seek treatment for drug and alcohol problems also have chronic pain, as it turns out. And the most obvious reason is because they have a bad pain problem that's not being well managed, so they find themselves into problems with prescribed medication or non-prescribed drugs. Which makes um, sense, yeah. Yeah, it does. And, and there's a number of other factors too, but it's very prevalent. The unfortunate thing is those guys fall between the cracks of the two services. They're, the pain clinics say, well, you're a drug and alcohol, you need that service, and, and drug and alcohol say, well, you need a pain specialist. And so they tend to not really often get the help they need. So, so this program was about looking at how can we assist people who are in residential treatment for drug and alcohol who also have a pain problem, and how do we equip those guys? So that project's the first phase has been done, and I've run some focus groups with residents there asking them about their experiences living with pain when you also have a drug and alcohol problem and what they feel they need. And again, they're very positive about having some uh, input and education around how to self-manage their pain problem as they're learning to manage their addiction and, and lead a, ultimately you know, a healthier life and, and improve their quality of life. So um, that project's also been, been really wonderful to be involved with. Sounds like a fabulous project and linking that alcohol and drug use with chronic pain and being able to alleviate and work on both at the same time. You know, if you can get those outcomes, that's really terrific. Toby, the research examples you've shared with us are so diverse and complex, as is your school, the Graduate School of Health at UTS. It's a big school with nearly 800 students across six allied health disciplines and each discipline has their own research and clinical areas of focus. In the real world, like in a hospital setting, for example, many of these allied health professionals would be interacting with each other, working together to manage a patient's well-being. How do you encourage this interdisciplinary collaboration across the school when you're dealing with so many different health disciplines, all having to learn their own trade, so to speak? Something I think we're all very mindful of when the school was set up was that we have individual curricula, we have individual accreditation bodies for different disciplines. And so people learn their trade, as you said, in, in the sort of a silo, and yet they go to work on the first day and they're going to sit around a table with all these other health professionals and everyone's going to be contributing to, to patient management. So it was something that we thought we need to do as much as we can to try and help our students understand, yes, they learn their job, but there are lots of other people also working with them when they get into the workforce that they need to understand their role as well. So it's a laudable aim that the delivery is often trickier because everyone's, you know, all curricula are very full and there's lots going on, but we have managed to do a number of things. And one of them, which has been really popular is during the orientation week in the second year, we have all the students from all the six disciplines or the five disciplines on campus get together to look at a stroke rehabilitation case. So somebody's had a stroke and has gone through the acute period, so they're stable, so they're not, it's not life-threatening anymore, but that individual has a high probability of having some vision impairment, some speech difficulty, some physical mobility problems. They will have medication management issues. They're very likely to be effects in their mood and their mental health and that of their family. And so we get students from all the disciplines to get together and to discuss a case and to conceptualize where would my role be here alongside the roles of these other health professionals who are very likely to be working on this sort of case together. So as a taster for students to see that, yes, they, they have knowledge from their perspective, but there's lots of knowledges that are going to go towards contributing to best outcome for these patients. I think it's a, it's a really good stepping stone. And we're hoping to be able to actually even move that into some more simulated learning as well in an actual hospital setting and have students exposed to the different sort of apparatus and understanding 
um, what happens in that sort of setting as well. So, so interprofessional learning is something that I think all of us recognise is important. It's it's just a matter of how how do we how do we squeeze it into into busy curriculum already. Can you remind us again what are the health disciplines in the Graduate School of Health? So the disciplines, uh, in no particular order, are clinical psychology. Uh, we have genetic counselling. We have orthoptics, pharmacy, physiotherapy, and speech pathology. Thanks. And so you're the acting head of school and you have been for a while. How are you enjoying that role with all of those disciplines? I guess you don't have a favourite. <laughs> <laughs> no favourites. No. Look, it's it's been a great, it's a challenging role. As you said, there's a lot of disciplines, there's a lot of students, there's a lot of staff. We have uh, PhD students and all of those disciplines as well. We have exciting things happening in, in online learning as well as our on campus. So there's a lot of balls in the air and some new skills for me to, to learn as well. But at the end of the day, we're doing a very worthwhile job. And I think, you know, having that sense of meaning in your work and that you feel like you're, you're making a difference, certainly one of those jobs that that's that that level of satisfaction is definitely there. That's fabulous. So there's so much fantastic teaching and research happening within the Graduate School of Health. And I know it's a fairly new school, but it's just going from strength to strength. What's next for your school in 2023 and beyond, Toby? Well, we have a couple of very exciting developments in, in the psychology space, firstly. So we've just launched two brand new graduate diplomas in psychology via the UTS online approach. Um, so that will enable students who are interested in, in studying psychology to do both level one and level two training and could give them um, provisional registration as a psychologist if they complete both of those level one and level two studies. And in 2024, we will be launching an on-campus Bachelor of Psychology degree for the first time at UTS. So that will be, again, a huge, exciting new development. It's actually Bachelor of Psychology and a Bachelor of Psychology Honours, and we're looking at combined degrees as well, because psychology, of course, is one of those areas that links with lots of other sort of faculty interests around the university. So those are exciting developments in psychology. And we've in genetic counselling, actually, we have some plans to look at a graduate certificate with some international collaborators, which will be also taking that knowledge and giving it, spreading it and encouraging um, understanding across, you know, outside of Australia, which is, again, big development and, and wonderful for the genetic counselling profession. Wow, they sound like some big and exciting options and really, you know, looking forward to seeing where that psychology goes. I know we've had a lot of interest from lots of potential students. So, Toby, I just wanted to say thank you very much for being my guest on Talking Health today. It's just been such an interesting conversation and I really hope we could do this again. Thank you, Debbie, very much. I've enjoyed it. Today, I've been speaking with Professor Toby Newton-John from the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. You've been listening to Talking Health by the University of Technology, Sydney, and you can find us at uts.edu.au.